This is Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Sinell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hello. Thanks for joining us on Tech Transforms. I'm Carolyn Ford here with my co-host, Mark Sinell. Hi, Mark. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Today's guest is Troy Schneider, Editor-in-Chief at Federal Computer Week, FCW, and Government Computer News, GCN. And Troy began his career in print journalism and has written for a wide range of publications, including the New York Times, Washington Post, Slate, Political, just to name a few. So good morning, Troy. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Good morning, Troy. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. You know, a little gray and soggy outside, but otherwise good. All right. Where where are you located? I'm in Arlington, Virginia, so right outside of D.C. Okay, so we're raining out there, are we? Yeah. It is yeah. pouring and sticky and swampy today. Uh, I'm in Arlington, too, Troy, so I'm just down the road from you. Very good. All right. Well, this morning, actually, I'd like to just start with kind of a softball, Troy, and I would love to hear about your professional career, how you came to be the editor-in-chief at FCW and GCN, two of the oldest and most influential publications in the public sector IT. You've had this long career. I don't want to date you, but you've had a long (laughs) career, and I'm really interested to know how you got into the government side of things, especially. Yeah. I mean, I started in the you know, what most people think of as more the traditional Washington journalism of more the, the politics and the campaign, the lobbying side of things. I worked for uh, for National Journal uh, almost straight out of college and um, uh, and was there when it was a, a weekly print magazine and not much else and just starting to, to tiptoe into the digital space. So I spent about a decade, uh, a little more than that, with different parts of National Journal, which grew into Atlantic Media Company over the years. And um, uh, and was lucky enough to be there at the at the creation of the digital business of, of really moving to uh, to web publishing and even online publishing before websites were the, the kind of settled on channel and uh, covered Congress, covered campaigns, all of all of that sort of work, and then made a pivot to a think tank. I worked for uh, New America Foundation, which is now called just New America. And went there to help them with their publishing efforts. Uh, you know, I really liked the the ideas and the policy side of things, and it was a very sort of media centric organization where they knew that they couldn't just be contributing op eds to places, but really needed to have their own uh, publishing channels. And I did that for about uh, seven years or so, and and got a call about a job with with FCW to come on as the as the number two editor and and if everyone liked each other to um, to move into the into the senior role and uh, for me it was a, it was a little bit of a, a, a daunting transition to to um, to focus on the true government side because you know my focus for the first part of my career had been about all the stuff that happens to to figure out what goes into the budget, to figure out what goes into the laws, to figure out who's going to be elected to those positions. And in that sort of 
politics-centric view. You know, what happened after the bill was signed and the agencies got it? Well, you know, it was just kind of implementation details. And, you know, and then you you dive in and you realize you know, just how big that set of details is and just how important uh, the operations are. But FCW at the time, they wanted to be less about computers because, you know, IT is so much more than that now and more about the policy and the business and the leadership side. And, um, and I had done a lot of work with emerging technology uh, during my time at New America. So we had sort of crept a lot closer than we would have been, uh, uh, you know, when I was at National Journal. Uh, I, I think we would have seen each other in two completely different uh, spaces, but there was enough overlap that it was interesting to, to both parties. And I came in in 2012 uh, as the uh, executive editor of SCW, um, stepped into the editor role about a year and a half later, and then uh, um, uh, took the similar role at GCN a couple a couple years after that, and we've just been rolling ever since. So, kind of a, I mean, early on, you you, you kind of well, you you had a government beat, but there was a transition for you. There was. It was a you know, I knew government, I knew Congress, I knew the budget process, I knew nothing about things like. FedRAMP or FISMA <laughs> or, um, uh, or really just what agencies have to do to, um, uh, to effectively run and, and sort of execute their missions. And uh, I remember talking to, um, uh, to a colleague who had who'd worked in this sector before I took the job and said, well, you know, there's, this is exciting. There's a lot that I don't know. And he's like, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like learning a foreign language and, you know, you walk around and you're <laughs> scribbling down notes and looking things up every day. And then, you know, six weeks or six months later, you wake up and you realize you're dreaming in Spanish. And uh, <laughs> and um, and that was it. I, you know, I would come out of every conversation I had with Ann Armstrong at uh, at FCW or every interview I did with someone with a list of names and acronyms that I had to go dig into the FCW archives and figure out what they were talking about. but it doesn't take long for that stuff to start to fit together. And then, you know, at a certain level, journalists, you know, should be able to get smart on any beat. It, it helps to have the, it helps to have some subject matter expertise, but mainly it helps to have the curiosity and want to, to dig in. And the federal IT space is just a fascinating community. Uh, so it's, it's easy to, to be engaged. And the fact that it really is a community is something that I didn't fully appreciate when I when I joined FCW, but is one of my favorite parts of the job now. Where you know the people in government, the people in industry, yes, everyone has their jobs, everyone has their things they do and don't want to talk about, but they really do want to work together and and are generally united by that mission of of making government work better. And it's it's nice to be a part of that in a you know in a media capacity. You said something that. It really like hits home to me almost daily. Just government is its own ecosystem. You talked about Congress and that layer and knowing it, and then the agencies and what they have to deal with, with the mandates, but then also developing and procuring um, the different technologies. And that this podcast is focused on how global technology is changing the way we live and how critical government decisions are um, and affects the intersection of technology advancement and human needs. And that said, you said something really interesting in your promotion of the 2021 GCN Innovation Awards. So I'm going to quote you here. You said, public sector tech is far cooler 
than the government often gets credit for. First, I love that. Um, and can you talk more about that? Uh, sure. I mean, there are certainly corners of government where the you know the stereotype of bureaucracy um, has been earned. But there are, you know, I've never met more people who work harder and are more committed to their job than I have in my conversations with people in, in government IT. You know, I care about my job and I think I work very hard and I feel like a slacker when I'm talking to almost any agency CIO. So the, you know, the people part of it is truly outstanding. But you look at the, you know, at the technology side of things and um, over the last 10 years, especially, government has been such a leader in um, in really thinking about how to digitize um, the workflows and, and think about how to serve citizens differently. And then obviously in the emerging tech side and the things that I cited uh, in that, uh, you know, in that short article or intro that you were quoting, uh, you know, I mean, you have DARPA, you have NASA, you have the places that have the reputation for being the cool kids doing amazing things. Uh, but you dig deeper and there's, you know, there's no one that's doing more with data than, uh, than some of our government agencies. And, um, and at the state and local level, what's happening with, um, uh, with Internet of Things and smart city efforts is, is really leading edge. And so, um, you know, are there places where everyone's trying to catch up to the, you know, to the Googles and the Amazons? Absolutely. You know, you can't have a conversation in government that, you know, several years ago, it was the Domino's analogy of like, why can't I do whatever in government as easily as I can order a pizza on my phone? You know, I feel like uh, Amazon and any number of other companies have, you know, just continued to advance the user experience uh, even further. And there are places where government's still working to catch up there. But when you talk about, um, you know, doing new technology and doing it at scale, uh, there aren't many places that can match what the government's doing. And, and you're seeing some agencies beyond the, the sort of traditional, um, uh, you know, cool places, the, again, the NASA's, the DARPA's, um, you've found agencies doing a better job of leveraging that, that mission and that scale challenge to bring, uh, you know, a whole new type of talent and a new type of worker into the government space because you can work on things that you just couldn't do anywhere else. Can you think of an example specifically, like the cool stuff that the agencies of an sure. agency has done? Sure. I mean, you know, let's go to, you know, let's go to VA and, um, and VA, this is one where, uh, you know, most of the stories you hear about VA are like, Oh, scheduling problems. And, you know, and that's waiting on care, uh, over the years. But um, but the VA, even 30 years ago, was doing stuff that virtually no one else was doing on, um, you know, on digital health records and sort of focusing on like long-term care and, and making it, making those systems really work for both the physicians and the, the patients. And the, the VISTA system is, uh, you know, is being replaced now as they move to, um, to Cerner. But VA was a, um, was a true innovator in, in developing uh, real sort of user-centered design and, and working all through the, the health system to both serve individuals and to try and look at the bigger lessons of um, what's happening with public health by looking at the data across their entire, um, you know, veteran uh, caseload. So, you know, so that's one. 
another more recent would be what HHS was doing uh, in the COVID, uh, when the pandemic first got rolling with, with HHS Protect and really trying to pull all the data and, um, uh, and bring it together at tremendous speed so that policymakers could make decisions about, you know, about understanding how the virus was progressing of, um, you know, making sort of public health recommendations. And obviously that's been a very politically charged uh, conversation, but if you strip away exactly what decisions were made and look at what um, the the HHS team did in 2020 to build out um, just a amazing, uh, you know, um, data lake and, and high-end analysis to that, um, that was pulling things in from, from hospitals across the country in, in real time. That's the type of project that, you know, you can't, you can't go to a private sector company and, um, and work on that. And, and I think the, the impact in the short term for, um, you know, for helping us get a handle on the on the COVID crisis, and in the long term of just the lessons learned of what we can do with um, with public health data, it's just going to be tremendous. So, so, um, so, Troy, one of the so one of the things that um, kind of uh, goes hand in hand with some of those efforts is uh, security, mm-hmm. and um, you know the president put out the executive order in regard to uh, cybersecurity. And I was uh, very curious to get your thoughts about that and particularly zero trust and sure. what that means to you. What it means to me? Well, I, I mean, I should say that we could we could fill several books with what I don't know about zero trust. But it is, um, you know, it's been really interesting to watch that become uh the, the kind of organizing principle for so many, uh, you know, for so many security conversations in government. Uh, you know, I, I remember it was three or four years ago where we were doing at FCW, we we're doing a roundtable with about a dozen um, CIOs and CTOs talking about security challenges. And, and one of them said, like, I really wish we could get to zero trust. You know, Google's been doing this and it'd be great. And it sounded, you know, the, the reaction in the room was like, that would be really cool. It would also be really cool if I had wings was sort of the, um, the sense. And now, uh, you know, agencies are actively uh, pushing toward it. But in terms of like what zero trust is, um, that's, you know, it is a, you know, it's an idea. And I'll give you the, the layman's explanation, which is, um, you know, there's a longstanding idea in, in uh, IT security of least privilege access. It's like, you know, you don't want to have, uh, you know, if you're doing your stuff on your computer day to day, you don't want to have the permissions that let you intentionally or accidentally, you know, delete all the files on your um on your machine, you know, you should be logged in in a way that just lets you do what you absolutely need to do, and have to, you know, go in with admin privileges to do um, to do more. That's hard. It, it makes life complicated for users, and so one of the big cyber hygiene problems that that government and all organizations have had was sort of, you know, rampant use of admin privileges where they really weren't necessary, and it leads to the vulnerabilities like we saw in the, you know, in the OPM. Uh, hack several years ago, where once people were able to get in and they could get privileges, they could move through the system and and access everything. Zero trust is this idea of I am going to give you only permission to access the data you need right now, and when you need a new set of data, I'm going to re-verify. And um, uh, so it's a simple concept, but how to do that across government systems 
and in a way that doesn't grind uh, you know, grind operations to a halt because of yeah. all the, you know, all the frictions that are being put in. That's the hard part. And that's what agencies are, um, you know, are wrestling with right now. And, and where they get into trouble is if they say, oh, we're just going to, you know, we're going to implement zero trust in 2022. Well, it's not a thing you can implement. It is a sort of mindset and approach, and it requires changes at virtually every level of, of the IT operations and, um, and how they're managed. And so I think it's good, but it's going to be a long slog. It seemed like a decade or uh, about a decade or so ago, there was this, uh, an analogous executive order that, went, that, that was put out on insider threat, but it had mm-hmm. a lot of specific details and requirements that were laid out as to how to go about that. So, yeah. so in this executive order, there seems to be a certain level of vagueness to it. How do you see this manifesting itself as we move forward? Yeah, I mean... I, at this point, I'm willing to give uh, the administration the benefit of the doubt on this. And we had a conversation with a a group of officials not too long ago, and it included um, uh, Chris DeRussia, the the, the federal CISO. And one of the stated goals is to, um, uh, you know, uh, one of the main assignments of the executive order is that agencies have to sort of do their own assessment and say, this is our plan of working towards zero trust, and this is what we have in place now. Um, and and here's how we think we're doing against those those efforts. And you're right, that's a very abstract um, a set of marching orders. But part of the goal, as I understand it, is for OMB to be able to take that information to start to to get a sense of what building blocks different agencies actually have in place, so that they can then take that to bring uh, both more specific guidance uh, out for the agencies and also to start to make the the business case to say, okay, well, you know, for agencies to get to this certain level that we think is important, we can now see that this amount of time or this amount of investment is required. And, and so part of this is to, to, is to help sort of establish the the facts and make the business case for, um, uh, for helping agencies move forward with their their zero trust efforts, because there is a recognition that it's going to be it's going to be a long and and somewhat expensive process. Yeah. So coming right up are the Fed. Let's see. Let me get the title right. Help me try the Fed one hundred. The Federal one hundred awards. Yeah. Yeah. So I I want you to speak more to it, but as I understand them, these awards are all about industry and government innovations. And what I'm hearing you say is industry, you know, government says we want to get to where Google is with zero trust. But I've seen a lot of um, really forward thinking, especially with the DOD around zero trust. And this this coming together of industry and government is so important. And I see that with the Fed 100 awards. Will you talk more about those awards, like how you decide who to name? Because there's so many. I mean, how do you decide who the innovators are every year? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, and and we at FCW uh, do not. And it's one of the things that makes the Fed 100 Awards uh, so special. And those are, they're coming up. Uh, they've been, you know, the winners were announced early this year. We put off the actual gala until the end of August, hoping we'd be back to a good safe space. We're now sort of in a safe-ish uh, space, uh, but I think with with vaccination requirements for attendance and um, and masking, we're feeling pretty good about being able to celebrate in person here in uh, in a few days. So, um, uh, you know, I'd encourage people to check out the list because it's an amazing number, amazing list of people, and it's all at fed100.com. 
But the award program, uh, you know, what makes it real is that it is really community driven. You know, the nominations come in from across the, the community. We put the, the nomination out and it's not just a, you know, hey, I like Mark, I like Carolyn, you know, one line if they did great stuff. It's a fairly intensive. Wait, are you saying I'm not going to make the list? I'm I think that, was an, that was an endorsement. I think he just awesomeness. He uh, just endorsed you, Carolyn. Come on. <laughs> and um, but, you know, there are plenty of, uh, you know, there are plenty of awards as listicles out there, not just in our space, in the world in general. And um, uh, the Fed 100 is not that it is, uh, you know, the, the best nominations, they come in, uh, you know, they have a whole slate of nominators from both uh, the organization of the individual there and usually customers or partners who are, who are vouching for her or for him. Uh, they have pretty detailed essay question answers about explaining the job, explaining what they accomplished in the past uh, calendar year, because that is the criteria for Fed 100 is an outstanding individual achievement um, in the previous year. And we really look for the, the specifics there. And then what FCW does is we assemble a panel of judges uh, for this. And it is often, uh, but not always, previous Fed 100 winners. It is always uh, people who are both senior in the, in the community and doing work to where they, they know about a lot more than their own silo. So they're, you know, they're working across agencies. They have ties into industry. So, uh, you know, we have often had the, the federal CIO be a judge, uh, the CIO of the, the Defense Department, other major agencies. And we work very hard to build a panel that um, has expertise from, from across government. So there's always an acquisition pro. There's always a security expert. And, and there are industry um, leaders there as well. And, you know, as you all know from this community, a lot of the industry people have uh, have spent a portion of their careers in government as well. So they know both sides of that, that conversation. And the judging process, they get a binder that's about yay thick and, um, and spend a tremendous amount of their personal time going through that. And then we all convene, uh, you know, this year, unfortunately, it was in a, um, you know, in a Microsoft Teams meeting for seven hours on a Saturday. But normally we'll gather in a conference room uh, you know, bring in food and, and lock ourselves in there as the group of, uh, you know, seven to nine judges goes through each nomination and reaches a consensus on who makes it and, and who doesn't. And some of them are easy and slam dunks. And some of them are easy to say, no, nice person. But, you know, this is not, you know, this is not a, um, you know, a nice person award there. That project's not far enough along yet. Um, and but then there are really intensive uh, debates about a, you know, sort of that 80-20 rule that applies to a lot of things. Uh, and it's it's fascinating. I learn more in that day of deliberations uh, than I do in any other like three or four weeks of the year. And I'm, I'm just amazed at at how much the our judges know about the individual people and the individual projects that are going on across government. It, like, there's almost never a case where there isn't at least one judge who knows has firsthand knowledge about either the person or the project, or at the very least, one of the nominators who's vouching for them and, and can go sort of do a quick fact check on it. And, uh, you know, we bring our reporters in to help take notes in this process. Uh, it helps us with writing the profiles when things are done. But I also do it because it's like a masterclass for the for the edit team to just sit there and learn from these people. So it is... Um, 
it's legit. When I first came to FCW, it was like, we have a black tie, what to recognize who and why. And, um, and was a little bit skeptical until I went to the first one and saw how seriously people took it. And then I went through the selection process, um, again, where, you know, Ann Armstrong, our chief content officer who helped create the Fed 100 awards, um, you know, she likes to say, we have a voice, but not a vote in there. And same thing, I will share things that we know from our reporting, but the judges ultimately decide who the Fed 100 winners are. That was a longer answer than you may have wanted, but. No, I I appreciate it. And these awards, you've given me even more insight into what I thought they were. I think they're incredibly important. Like you said, the people that work in government, they don't do it for the paycheck. They do it because they believe in the mission. I mean, my father was, was one of them, spent his life dedicated to making this country safe for his children, right? Mm-hmm. That's why that's why they're there. And they don't, we don't give them enough recognition. And these awards are so, so important. Um, what are some of the technologies that you're keeping your eye on that you think will impact in helping the government improve um, citizen services that are, that are gonna be next year's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, award winners, I guess? Yeah, I mean, the one that there's been so much talk over the last couple of years about about AI and machine learning and um, and those are there's really, really interesting stuff happening there. And I think those are going to be I mean, they're already being transformative and I think we're going to see more there. But the one that particularly with citizen services that has the um, is already having impact and I think it's going to be a, a huge factor for the next few years is you know, is automation and RPA. And, you know, the amount of work that's been done over the last three to four years to, you know, to free up government employees from sort of rote tasks and to and to sort of improve and um, accelerate the the citizen experience by having things um, be, you know, be automated by these bots to, you know, to move through a system in minutes, what could have taken days or weeks to go from one desk and department to the next has um, has just been tremendous. And, you know, uh, NASA has done great stuff with RPA and kind of created almost like a shared services center there. Um, you know, GSA has done tremendous stuff in-house and, and built a, a real community of interest for the uh, others in government. But it's one of those that RPA is not as sexy as, you know, as as machine learning and the, you know, all the things that AI can do when sort of fully leveraged. But in terms of the on the ground impact throughout government, it's, it's hard to find something that, uh, that has changed more different uh, business processes and brought more benefit to end users over the last couple of years. You know, amen. I mean, you're right. It's definitely not sexy. And as you said that, those rote processes that have to be done every day or even every week, they suck your soul. And so the automation is just so important. So um, we're, we're getting beat by time as usual, right, Mark? We always, we could, we could go forever on these interviews. Um, so we're coming up on, to the last part of our podcast where we, we throw these tech talk questions at you and they're just quick, rapid fire questions. But actually, before we go there, Mark, I kind of want to ask him, should we ask him about the band? Uh, of course. <laughs> I think we should. We have to. It's the name of your band is Soulfire. Correct. I 
So you play in a band. I want to know um, what instrument you play and like what types of music. This is awesome. There we go. Uh, I uh, I play bass. Uh, uh, we play, you know, it's a dad band, although there's a couple moms in it as, as well. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, it's we play, you know, everything from, you know, Rolling Stones to the Cure. It's I, I, this is not false modesty to say that I am probably the least talented member of the band. And uh, I'm OK, but there's just some tremendous people uh, there. And um and it's a blast. And there's also overlap. Uh, you know, uh, one of our, my, my bandmates is a senior official at NIST. And so. Really? Yeah. So, <laughs> where, can so we, if, where can we hear you? That's uh, right. You can come see us on September 1st uh, down at the wharf in D.C. We're playing at the, oh, nice. um, at the transit pier on, on Wednesday the 1st. All right. So can we find you online? You can, uh, there is a, um, uh, there is a website and you can find us at, uh, at, at so far the band on Instagram. That will be in our show notes. And Alex, our, <laughs> our podcast manager is listening. Alex, I think we need to find some music to play us out for this episode. All right. Now <laughs> let's get to our tech talk questions. A completely different, different category. <laughs> So, all right, Troy, first question is, you kind of already, well, I was going to say you already answered this with the automation um, mm -hmm. answer, but let me, let me stop babbling. First question, what do you think the, the next big leap in technology will be? Well, I, I sort of... Uh, Trash talked AI a little bit there, not trash talked, but is uh, you know it has been big on the buzz. But I really do think that um, that the sort of practical application of AI in government is is going to be the thing that just disrupts operations in ways that we don't fully appreciate yet. You're seeing a little bit of that in sort of intelligent automation right now, where it's not just rote processes, but sort of makes some decisions. But the um, you know learning how to use the the power that has um you know has sort of rapidly accelerated in in terms of what these algorithms can do is really is a big deal so so open-ended here troy mm -hmm. what is inspiring you these days personally when it comes to tech oh my goodness um personally. so like what are you reading or listening to oh sure um you know, I, of course, I love our own publications and my colleagues, but the, um, but the, but the publication that I look to is, uh, is the one that the IEEE puts out. Um, uh, they just do a great job of getting, you know, technical above my pay grade, but really looking at emerging tech in a, um, you know, I love Wired as well, but like the things that Wired talks about, but in a, you know, you know, even more geekier, what's it going to mean for, um, you know, for how you can do your business better. And so I, I feel like, you know, I feel like I learn something every, every time I go to that, that publication and, you know, so that's a source in terms of, of the tech. It really is this, um, you know, how to, you know, how to really automate and bring better digital citizen services is to me, the, just the coolest place that, that government can, uh, can add value right now because you know we saw over the last year that how much we can do in a virtual environment that maybe people had thought wasn't possible before, and uh, but it also sort of 
revealed a lot of the rough edges in the, in those processes. And so government's made a lot of progress there in the last five, 10 years, but there's, there's just so much more that could be done there. Yeah. All right. What technology app gadget is your favorite that you use most during your daily life? I mean, it's, it's not uh, very new and creative. Like I live on my MacBook air nonstop, you know, and it's a, uh, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, like a gadget file, uh, in the house. I, you know, I spend my money on musical toys, not tech toys. So, um, so it's really, um, uh, just, it's not so much that it's new and exciting. It's just, I feel like it's an, you know, uh, like it might as well be physically attached to me at this point. <laughs> yeah. Although what you just said about the musical toys and, and gadgets, yeah. I mean, that's technology, right? Just, like you're probably buying new tech all the time to further your musical interests. It is. It's, uh, it's, it's true. And, and the, I have to say the pandemic was not good for the um, <laughs> checkbook or the piles of new toys. So. <laughs> what's, what's on your wish list for tech or for music? <laughs> oh, well, either one, either both. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, on tech, I want to learn, uh, you know, there was a time in my life where I was doing a lot more hands-on tech at, you know, it, when I was at the think tank, we were building out the publishing models. Like I knew the ins and outs of the content management systems and like could actually get in and do, um, do basic coding and basic sort of, you know, MySQL work. And those skills have sort of atrophied for me. So it's, it's less that there's a toy or a piece of hardware that I want, uh, then I'd really love to dive back into, um, uh, to being a little more practical and and hands-on just because I think it makes makes me be able to ask better questions and understand the challenges. So, um, you know, a little more uh, resurrecting my my developer skills. All right, last question. Mm -hmm. This one's this one's just for you. Nobody else gets asked this. What's your favorite song to play? Uh, Strap for Cash, which is- All right, a, there we go, Alex. There's the one that's going to play this episode out. <laughs> All right. Well, Troy, thank you so much for taking time with us today. It's been a really fun conversation. Um, thanks to our listeners for joining. And if you enjoyed the show, share it, smash that like button, and we will see you next week on Tech Transforms. Thanks, Pat Roy. Thanks, Carolyn. Thanks, guys. joining Tech Transforms. Please post a review, share this episode, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.